there was one we set up and we bought in Australia's capital, which is Canberra. And, you know, we purchased it for 6.4 mil and sold it uh, 22 months later because a couple of the, inve- like there was a divorce and a couple of those types of uh, external factors involved. <laughs> um, but we sold it for 8.35 mil. So it went up nearly 30% in under two years. And it was getting an 8% return cash flow during that time as well. So the, the return on equity was, was very Huge. strong. Yeah, and we thought What's right, right. What was the IRR on that one? If you even, oh, I don't have it in front of me. But carry we, the we, one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it was it was to the point where you know we we all more than doubled our money um, yep. within that very short period of time. That's plus incredible. the cash flow on top, which was sort of that rolling. Wow! 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 Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, the pleasure of speaking with Scott O'Neill. Scott is a Sydney-based real estate investor, and he retired at the age of just 28 after building a $20 million portfolio in just 10 years. Now, Scott and his wife, Mina, have now founded the commercial real estate company called Rethink Investing, a professional property investment firm that helps other Australians buy and invest in commercial real estate. And they're actually the number one buyer's agent in the country. They've helped over 1,800 clients purchase over a billion dollars in Australian commercial real estate. Now, to top it all off, they're now launching their first ever book and they want to share with the outside world their secrets about how they achieve financial freedom. And they walk through a proven seven-step method to start successfully investing in Australian commercial real estate. I'm really excited and pumped to have Scott on the show today to share his incredible knowledge about the Aussie market. But enough of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Scott. How are you doing today, mate? 
Yeah, mate. Very good. Thanks for having me on your show. Mate, my pleasure. Um, just before we get into it, I do want to preface for the show for all the listeners. There might be saying, why are Pete, why are we talking to an Aussie guy when this show is about investing in the US? Well, <laughs> the thing is with the American dollar being so much greater than the Aussie dollar, Scott and his company are trying to attract US investors to the Australian market. And I will just say, and we'll get into it in a little bit. I will just say there's a lot of similarities between the Aussie investing market and the commercial space and the US market. If you can maximize that foreign currency exchange, you can come in, I think it's what, 1.3 times now the US dollar to, to Aussie dollar at the moment. So you bring a million bucks in, you're really you, you, you're shopping with a $1.3 million. So we'll get into that, but I just wanted to preface that before we dive into the show. But let's get into it. Um, Scott, I ask all my guests that come on the show is rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Uh, it was McDonald's actually. I was uh, out the back filling up... Uh, yeah, basically from stockroom to the barbecue area. So that was I was about sort of fourteen when that was happening, and uh, yeah, got promoted to be uh, on the actual press where you uh, cook the Big Mac burgers and all that. So that was it was a horrible job, but it, it sort of made every other job a little bit easier, to be honest. So <laughs> yeah, it was a good experience, I guess. I tell my story. I remember being. 13 and a half in Queensland and walking around the local Coolum Beach uh, with literally pieces of torn up newspaper with my parents' phone number on it and just trying to get any job. And I remember getting Sorrento Cafe and that was uh, the first job. But, uh, but mate, tell us about where you grew up and, you know, your forte into the real estate market because, and, and did you have a job and a, you know, a, a career before getting involved in real estate? Yeah. So I was a civil engineer. So we would mostly working on railways. Uh, and then I got into sort of the building material games, so like aggregate mines, sand mines, all that kind of stuff. So very engineering focused, very uh, numbers orientated. But what my job entailed was lots of travel, lots of uh, after hours work, especially on the railways. You could imagine that whenever you do work on a railway, it's got to be non-peak times. So Christmas was a busy time. Easter was. Uh, even New Year's Day and things like that, we're always kind of having to, uh, you know, have these shutdowns. And uh, I just thought, you know, this is great for a few years. You know, it was paying pretty good relatively. And I just, uh, I just thought I didn't want to do this for the next 40 years of my life. So it's made me look at other options and uh, just real estate was, was the obvious one. Like in Australia, uh, there's been a really good, uh, growth pattern over the years. So if you get in early, hold for a long period of time, you tend to do very well. So that was the uh, the initial entry into it. So I, I just bought local in Sydney. I grew up in Sydney and um, yeah, bought a little house and, and a granny flat. So it was like a, a second income on the property. And that second income actually gave the property a better yield than any other property in that suburb. So uh, it was a positively geared property, which is quite hard to find in Australia because most properties, uh, I guess, it, it's more of a growth play than yield. And we just found uh, that granny flat was the way of getting the best of both worlds, growth and yield. And that one property went, I paid about 480000 for it in 2010. Uh, it's worth about 1.1 mil. So, you know, it doubled in, uh, in you know, the 10 years after. So, that was a good result. I was able to use a lot of that equity to then purchase many other properties. So we got into unit blocks. You know, I was always chasing yield because yield was a way of kind of bringing retirement earlier. If it was simply to, uh, you know, I wanted 150,000 passive income at the time. And every time I was buying these types of properties, it was another you know, 25 grand per annum, 20 here, 15 there. And it slowly added up. And 
were able to replace our income. And um, yeah, we purchased, it was about, before we quit our jobs, it was about 28 properties we got out and um, we really moved into commercial as well because of the yields were just you know far greater as well. So we can go into that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I just want to, you know, some of the terminology you use there, positively geared for those American listeners just means cash flow. <laughs> and <laughs> and think of the, the big uh, comparison I can do between the US and the Aussie market is that Australia is like LA, San Francisco, New York, high appreciation markets, low yield. So when Scott talks about Sydney doubling its value in 10 years time, you're probably doing the same thing here in, in Los Angeles. Like I live in Los Angeles. Um, you don't really find a lot of positively geared properties in, in LA to add, and to do what Scott's doing. You'd have to do what, what he'd do here, which is, you know, I, I have a four and a half thousand square foot lot here in LA. Um, if I was to rent it out, it wouldn't cover, probably would not even cover my mortgage. But if I put a granny flat on the back or an ADU, like what Scott did, you can then, that that becomes positively geared. And so that, you know, cash flow and then you can put that cash flow towards your, your retirement. So interesting to hear that. And, and my whole thing coming from from Australia to America, Scott, is that I always look back at Australia and said, there, there can't be any yield, right? There's just, because there's, there's no, the big difference between Aussie and America is that the secondary markets and tertiary markets don't exist on the level that you have here in the States because of the population, right? We only got 24, 25, 26 million people yep. on a landmass roughly the same size as America. And then America's, America's got 300 million people and they've got all these secondary and tertiary markets. So you can't go and find, when I first moved here, I, I remember seeing all this great yield in these secondary and tertiary markets outside of the LAs and the San Francisco's. Is there something similar in Australia, those secondary and tertiary markets to get that yield in the residential um, to, 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 to add to your, you know, your 28, port, 28 unit portfolio that you, you obviously built up and retired on? Uh, there was maybe five years ago. So the growth just kept going. Uh, and this is why we moved to commercial because we were in these regional markets. And I guess one of the big differences with Australia as well, yes, we've got a lot of land mass, but we've got very high construction costs. We've got a lot of red tape. Uh, there's, there's uh, I guess we're only building in certain areas, like probably 90% of the country you wouldn't even think about living in because it's a, it's a desert or it's just far too isolated. So Although there's a lot of landmass, there is. Uh, we're really only on the east coast, and there's you know the city of Perth in the west, uh, and there's not much going on up north as well. So <laughs> there's a there's a huge amount of Australia that's just uh, not. Well, I wouldn't say not livable, but you wouldn't be investing there. So right. we are in certain pockets, and it's mostly the east coast of Australia. You know that's your Sydney, Melbourne. Uh, Brisbane, they're big cities, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, they're, they're all sort of three to 5.5 million in people. And um, they're growing quick because there's just a huge amounts of people that are trying to get into this country and they're going to be skilled migrants as well. This is the kind of post-COVID boom. Well, it's already booming at the moment, but uh, there's another round of booming to happen once those borders open because we're very, uh, we're all locked up at the moment. You know, we can't get out of the country, we can't get in, you know, it's, um, but there's pent up demand. Uh, there's you know two three hundred thousand people, skilled migrants that are desperate to get here per annum, and there's a line, and they're going to move to all these capital cities. So that will contribute to more growth as well. But to answer your question, the the yields really dried up in residential because of this. It's almost like a 30, 40 year pattern of growth. It, it's it's long term, and rents just haven't kept up. Uh, but on the flip side, this is where commercial is so great. The the yields, we're looking seven, eight, nine percent net yields with growth as well. So per the annum. overall per annum. Um, yeah. 
So very good yield, very good growth. And, uh, and yeah, they're just, they're solid properties. And that's why I've, I, I don't think I'll look back at residential again. Uh, <laughs> it had its place for me, it, you know, there was good equity gains and stuff like that, but at some point you need the yield and that's, you know, like how you invest, you, you need yield to keep going. You need to service the banks with the yield. You need yield to live off. You know, there's no point only getting capital growth because the only way to access that is either getting more loans or selling. And in Australia, you don't really sell because the exit costs are so high and you've got a uh, stamp duty capital gains tax. So you want to hold these assets. So that's one of the big differences to the sort of buy and flip methods that work in the US. And let's let's try and make a comparison between the US and Australia because part of your whole story and the book is in and around attracting the US capital uh, given the foreign exchange. I remember when I first moved to the United States in 2012, the Aussie dollar was in actually in parity with the US and a lot of Aussie money was coming to the US and from Europe as well, particularly buying in those cheaper secondary tertiary markets like, you know, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to throw any cities under the bus, but like Kansas City, right, or Detroit, all these sort of, you know, very, very um, affordable cities. So uh, now as the shoes on their foot, the, the American dollar is very strong against the US dollar, uh, the, the Aussie dollar. What when you say commercial properties, what are you specifically talking about? Because commercial can mean such a different many things. There's, there's storage, there's retail, there's hotels, there's multifamily, like what, what are there strip centers? What, what, what are you speaking of when you talk about your commercial properties in Australia? No, the main things we specialize in, are, like you said, storage, uh, industrial properties. So manufacturing, it might be, uh, you know, the whole online boom, e-commerce boom feeds into industrial properties, especially in Australia. There's a, you know, we're a long way from everywhere. So there's a, there's a great need for storage and logistics capabilities. So we like buying properties near airports, marine ports, uh, medical centers. Obviously, medical is a recession-proof industry. So we like buying, you know, general uh, practitioner areas. Uh, you might buy the dentist. You know, dentists can have extremely expensive fit-outs per square meter. So when you buy a good dentist, they're not going to move next door because it'll cost them too much. And they're generally not P&L profit and loss worried because they're doing quite well with the, uh, you know, they charge a lot and rent's sort of more insignificant for them. So we search these properties that are going to be quite strong no matter how the economy is going. And like I said before, there's a lot of red tape in Australia. So if you buy into an area that's kind of built out or there's a high cost to it, like we like buying below replacement costs as well. Yep. So that Definitely. just guarantees there's not going to be a, you know, the threat of new supply wipe your growth out. We're going to be buying, you know, 20% under replacement costs. So that's uh, another kind of a safety mechanism. Um, but like like you said, we're, we've seen a real strong increase of, of US investors and also from Hong Kong as well, randomly. That's obviously more political driven, but US because of the dollar. And I think it's because of how Australia's gone with the whole COVID exercise. Like our economy's been quite protected and, um, you know, the government's pretty much shown they're going to just, like we, we're giving a large amount of grants uh, similar to what the US is getting, but I think per capita it was even higher. And it, it pretty much just funneled all into the property market. And we're seeing the quickest growth rates in the last 33 years at the moment. So um, the trick is don't get too caught up with the growth because the growth will slow at some point. And that's where you need that good yield. Uh, and, you you know, that's the returns are quite well, they're very impressive at the moment because of those two factors. Yeah, right. So, so, so let, let's maybe walk us through a, a classic 
Um, I, I've got 10 million bucks. I'm, I'm a US investor. I'm coming to you, Scott. I said, where do I want to put my money to go and buy? And then let's look at it from the lens of going in cap rate. What's the sort of maybe value add strategy? Because in, in America here, we, I, in my multifamily, I always look to try and push rents or, you know, take it from, you know, uh, 900 bucks uh, uh, average on, on rents up to 1200. So increasing yeah. 20 or 25% through renovations, through making, you know, putting lipstick on a pig, let's not be honest, let's be honest, but, but, yeah. but, but doing it over, you know, 200 units because you've got the scale then. And then yeah. with the cap, with the compressing cap rate, I can then get the, um, the, the, that yield that you talk about. So maybe let's do it from that point of view. And, and where would you direct me in terms of putting my capital? Um, so a recent, it's always budget dependent. So we work from clients who have anywhere from, uh, you know, a $300,000 purchasing limit into the tens of millions. So it really doesn't, uh, I guess, where you want to land in that spectrum has a big impact. So we'll go mm -hmm. in the middle. Yep. Uh, a recent example was we purchased this uh, industrial facility. So it was like a logistics center. It had uh, Amcor as a tenant. You may know them. They're a global company. It also had four others as well. So they're all, so, you know, logistics-based type industrial properties. And they're all on long leases, you know, five years. Uh, the value add here, well, number one, we bought it at an 8.21% net yield, which was better than the area. So the average cap rate for that area was about seven. So, you know, if you divide by, uh, you know, I'll just get the old calculator out. If you, uh, <laughs> if you divide 8.21 divided by the seven, we got that 17% below market value. So that's buying better than the local cap rate. So that's that's the first thing you want to try to do, buy, buy below market value, because then you're having a win on the entry. And it kind of covers all your purchasing costs and, and whatnot. Uh, the yield being 8.21% uh, is is very strong. So obviously the, uh, the cash flow was, you know, it was very impressive in there. There was uh, ability to increase the length of leases. So the, the two main easiest ways to increase value for properties in commercial is number one, increasing the lease. So you just go, you just go find an under-rented property and buy it at the right rate. And then all you got to do is work with the tenant over a year or two or three to get them up to the market rate. And if you can bump the rents up 20%, you know, remember commercial property, a lot of the value is associated to the rent value. So if you can increase the rents by 20%, your uh, total equity position on the property will increase by 20%. And the good thing is valuers will recognize that. So even if you're not selling, you can literally refinance, pull that 20% difference out and maybe recycle it into another property. So when you start doing that, it, uh, you can almost get that kind of infinite return on your, you know, your ever expanding deposit because you, you're cycling it into bigger and bigger uh, positions. And, and that's sort of what my wife and I did. You know, we started, We've uh, pretty much, it was about 50 grand at the time, you know, that took us, that's working in McDonald's and little jobs here or there for five years. We put that into that Sutherland property, that Sydney property I mentioned with the granny flat. And as it grew, we moved that into, uh, moved the equity into other high income producing assets and it just snowballed. And yep. uh, the quicker it grows, the quicker you can move. And um, yeah, the, the returns will just grow because the rents will grow on you as well each year. So the longer you hold, the better the equation gets. I love it. And, and so the the big thing, and I'm just, just recapping that, so it's an 8.1 net yield. You're really saying it's an 8.1 cap, right? You're going in and, and, and we're talking triple net lease, right? Aren't we where the, where the tenant yeah. pays for everything under the sun, um, yeah. including taxes, I assume? 
Yeah. So they'll even pay for rental management. So you imagine like you, you, like in Australia, it might be about 5% of the gross rent, which is sort of, you know, that'd be dealing with like a major real estate company to manage your monthly statements, talk to the tenant, just basically give you the accountant friendly statement each month, but dealing with the tenants direct. The tenants will actually pay that in many cases themselves. So, because it's all written into the lease. So it is, like you said, a triple net. Sometimes it's not, but then you just got to adjust the price to factor in those extra costs. So we always work off a net figure. doesn't matter if it's triple net or not. We're going to calculate it back to that true net position before offering. And um, I guess not many people know this stuff. Compared to residential, it's it's just a lot less mainstream. So when you actually understand this space, you're, you're up against less competition. Mm-hmm. That's why I like it. You can get better deals dollar for dollar because you're, up, you're not up against... 200 odd other people going for the one property, you might be up against five. And um, and this is becoming more mainstream, which will inevitably mean there's more people doing it, but uh, that will also increase demand. So, you know, that's and that why I think- dry, And that will drive down cap rates. And that's, yeah, exactly right. And that that's the opportunity. For the next five years, cap rates will 100% have to drop down because yields in residential are so poor there's just so many people with a lot of money, uh, you know, in Australia and a lot from overseas trying to get here, and it just doesn't justify it I- anymore in the residential space. So where do you go? You know, maybe the share market. Maybe, like, there's not many options to get a good yield, especially in this country. But commercial is just lying there on a plate for us at the moment. And uh, yeah, there's a time window on that. It will compress, but um, yeah, good numbers for now. That's that, that, no, that's that's incredible. And so, talk about do you, do many of your investors or the buyers because you work as a buyer's agent, so you represent other investors going out looking for deals. Um, are they looking to uh, get out exit at any point, or, or they just it's more of a long term play um, until you know they're they're done. <laughs> Uh, look, good question. I find because we set up syndicates often, uh, I find the syndicates more have a five to seven year time limit. Um, yep. So, like there was one we set up and we bought in Australia's capital, which is Canberra, and you know we purchased it for six point four mil and sold it uh, twenty two months later because a couple of the invest like there was a divorce and a couple of those types of uh, external factors involved. <laughs> Um, but we sold it for 8.35 mil. So it went up nearly 30% in under two years. And it was getting an 8% return cash flow during that time as well. So the, the return on equity was, was very Huge. strong. Yeah. And we thought, well, right, IRI. what was the IRR on that one? If you even, oh, I don't have it in front Ca- of me, but carry we, the we, one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it was, it was to the point where, you know, we, we all more than doubled our money. Um, yep within that very short period of time, That's plus incredible. the cash flow on top, which was sort of that rolling. Wow. 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 Well, talk, talk to me a little bit about the financing of it, because that's the big thing that you get. You yep. talk about the 8% cash flow and the, the big metric we look here in America and you look across the globe is cap rate going in versus interest rate you can get on the debt. Right? And yep. if, I, I assume you're probably putting between 20 to 30% down on, a, yep. on, a, on an investment property, similarly you do here. And then you're sort of financing between 70, 60 to 80% of it at a rate of X. So what are the interest rates right now? What are the terms so you can get that juicy cash flow? All right. So as an individual, Australian resident, you can get interest rates as low as about 2%. I've heard a few examples under that, sort of, you know, the 1.8s for a commercial loan. Wow. Generally work, the, the terms have really got better in recent times. So the biggest change in the last five years is the loan terms. So 
most of my loan term is personally a 30 years. And that's generally it's a minimum 25 year loan term at the moment. So that obviously spreads your principal out very well. It helps with servicing. So you can keep buying this stuff. If you're a, if you've got the deposit, the properties service themselves. So you, even if you uh, get hit by a bus and there's, there's no involvement of you, these properties will service themselves and, uh, and comfortably as well. So if you're buying in a syndicate, that's where there's like a non-recourse loan. You generally work off your 50, 60% debt. So it's lower debt because there's no individual backing it. Um, you can do things called lease docs, which is a, a loan without looking at the financials. So even if you're unemployed and you've got half a million dollars cash, uh, you've got to have like an Australian company or at least uh, someone representing that company, but you can lend up to about sort of 60%, maybe even 70 so in certain cases without even a job. So hmm. you just got to have access to the, the deposit. So another trend that's happening is lending is getting easier. Uh, they're just trying to promote growth over here and uh, banks are going for market share and commercial because residential you know, again, I wouldn't say it's risky yet, like it's not, It's but um, debt levels are higher as a percentage and uh, banks are looking to make money and commercials, you know, are a nice you know, place they're all going to, well, they've already been hitting it pretty hard. So we're seeing lower rates, higher lending ratios and longer terms. Interesting. Well, that, that is, that's a great uh, summary. And just to recap, you're saying if you're through a syndicate you, or syndication syndicate, whatever you want to call it, it's between 50 and 60%, which is very moderate. And some people who listen to this show will probably think that's too low of a leverage, but there are a lot of big institutions out there that will only go here in America as well. When you buy a multifamily, they'll only put 50, 60% on it. Um, my question back to you is if you had some principals or the managers of the company that would you put their name against the loan, does that help bring that, that, that leverage up? Because that's typically how it's done here. In my syndications, my business partner and I, we sort of, we're saying here, we're the warm bodies and this is what we're worth. This is our liquidity, uh, this yep. is our net worth and we'll, we'll sign some bad boy carve outs that we won't take the money and piss off to China or Mexico or somewhere like that. So, <laughs> so can you get slightly higher leverage if you say, hey, I'm gonna sign on the dotted line? Uh, yes, and look, it's case by case, sure. and that's that's the good thing. If you work with a good broker, uh, mortgage broker, to look into the exact property and the individuals, it's a business case. So you just got to mm-hmm. sell it. Um, depending on the loan size, the asset location, uh, it varies greatly. So the trick is just to have a good mortgage broker on your side, and we can work around these things. And um, and yes, yeah, you can get lower, uh, sorry, higher lending ratios, and uh, it's just about finding that balance, which is you know, got the best yield because you don't want to go too risky on the property because then the banks will punish you there. Mm. Like, and the riskier you go, the higher the yield gets too. Generally, you probably have that in the US. You know, you can go into the towns with less growth prospects, so they've got to make it up for yield. Um, and my job is to find what the banks love as well because what whatever they like is a good indication. There's there's also strength there, and future lenders and borrowers can get easier finance for your property down the track. So. It's, uh, you don't want to restrict your exit buyers as well. And so what has been the biggest, what, what's the biggest piece of advice you give to an American investor thinking about you know, syndicating or putting their money into a syndication in, in, in Australia? I know yeah. I attract a lot of money from Australia into the US and, and we go through our LLC agreements. We have uh, PPMs, you know, so it sort of is a disclosure saying we, you, know, you are getting involved in a, in a risky deal. How would a US investor do the same coming back the other way? Are there the same documentation involved to protect them in a, in a, in a worst case scenario? 
Yeah, look, it's just about having the right set of teams around it. So you, you have a, an accountant that specializes in this space. So you're protecting yourself. Um, generally, a company is the best setup uh, to, to protect you because you, uh, you can retain profits in the company and pay dividends and, you know, you can play, play around. There's, there's just, it's better from a tax point of view that way. Uh, and you also can redistribute the profits into other properties. So like I said before, you don't have to just finish with the one. You might wait for that to go up and then you basically expand it into a, a future purchase. Uh, but I honestly think it's the same as a purchase if you're local. You've got to just really, you know, we're not big in taking risks. Like, I'm, you know, that's the engineering side of me. Like, we're all about looking at the worst case scenario with the asset. What happens if the tenants leave? How quickly would it take to replace that tenant? Um, you just want to be overly cautious, particularly because it's the other side of the world. But uh, you guys have different advantages because, uh, you know, like you said, there's a there's a massive advantage with the currency at the moment. Your dollar goes far. And right now, I think our real estate is, is quite undervalued, uh, specifically the commercial side. So uh, just having the right setup, you've got to have a good mortgage broker that understands your position. You know, you're making... Uh, an income somewhere else. So, you know, so does that get recognized by Australian banks? If not, what other options do you have for lending? So working out the lending scenario for your individual case is important. And then, uh, yeah, just having, having those trusted people on the ground will make it quite easy to deal with. It's just the time zone difference after that. Yep, that's exactly how my Aussie investors and international investors deal with me. So they build that trust. They understand the operators who are boots on the ground, who are doing the deals and finding the great deals day in, day out. And seeing a track record is also obviously really, really important. And then talking to other investors about referrals and saying, you know, how, how have you successfully exited? Have you successfully exited with, with this particular operator? Now, exactly the same sort of stuff. I think on the legal side, there'd be probably a bit more questions that you could get a, a lawyer involved in terms of how you sign up and stuff. Um, but tell me, I know we were speaking a little bit before this podcast about the the lack of, I don't want to say sophistication, but you're you're essentially in the brokerage space, right? You're out there shaking the tree to see what fruit falls off. And then there maybe isn't as much software on the commercial side as they have here in the US. I'm thinking about the co-stars, the AC metrics, you know, all the big, big players that bring out market data every year. So how is, how is it a little bit not as not as advanced in that state in the commercial area in the commercial space in Australia. It's it's a good question because yeah, there's plenty of coverage on residential like in Australia. It's it's the barbecue topic. Everyone has a strong opinion on residential real estate, whether it's going up, down, sideways. It's it's part of our culture. It's it's enormous. Um, but commercial, no one knows about it. It's it's just out of sight, out of mind. Yet. You drive up and down the street and you're seeing big factories, you know, all the big international brands. Like uh, it's just out of reach and out of interest for many, but that's changing. But one of the reasons is media coverage is very low. Uh, data coverage is very low. How I get my data, it's manual. I've got a team and we actually have to understand the individual markets that we're investing in. Like how long was that exact property vacant for? How many vacant in are within 50 kilometers of this area or, or miles? It's basically it's so hard to get that manually in. And that's probably helped. It helps me as a company uh, because we're, we understand this from coast to coast. So we've got good context between cities. We can identify sort of undervalued pockets or more importantly, where the market's starting to turn. We we're on the coal face. We can see there's uh, more buyer activity just starting, or maybe the, the leasing periods just dropped from three months vacancies to two months. And 
that's a sign that rent growth is going to happen. As the rent growth happens, so will your asset appreciation down the track. Unfortunately, this is not documented. It's generally, uh, you know, you, you just know small pockets and uh, you, the, the major real estate companies spit out their own results, but it's more just company related, you know, than likes of Savills or Knight Franks, you know, they're, they're all over the world. You get their reports, but, um, but they're only talking about very high level properties, you know, generally the big stuff, you know, the 50 million and above. Um, they don't talk about what most people actually want to buy, which is, you know, you've, you know, ones to fives to $10 million smaller properties because that's what most people can afford. So that's our pocket space. We, we specialize in that, uh, that level because I find the yields are actually better than the $50 million assets as well because sure. you're not up against in- institutions and managed funds because they, uh, they push yields down because there's more competition at the higher level. Yeah, there definitely is. Um, but there's also a little bit that they're a bit of a slower moving beast. And I, uh, we've started to delve into the bigger, bigger stuff here in, in the personally. And we found that the where the value can be created when you're buying from institutions is that they just don't have the attention to detail on the small stuff, like probably your lease contracts, like negotiating a good contract so you can add that value or adding value in a way that they didn't think about. And and, and because it is, they've got, you know, 40, 50, 100 assets in their portfolio. They're not, they're not worried about that little one that you yeah. could squeeze a little bit more juice out of. So, um, yeah, it can be, it can be good and bad, right? And it just depends on, on how you go and create your value in the specific niche of, or, or in the specific area, right? Cause every deal is different and, and you have to look at it at that through a certain lens. Now I love yeah. it. Um, tell me a little bit about how you're creating the company and the brand because what I would also would naturally go to, if you're already creating these syndicates and you're already looking for deals for other investors, why go to the other investors? Why don't you keep them for yourself? Are you, are you, are you trying, to, trying to find the money and the equity? Is that the hard part? <laughs> uh, yeah, look, so we're, we're purchasing about, um, it's on average about 25 properties a month. So there's there's That's no huge. chance we could ever do this ourselves. So, and look, at, at the same time, um, my wife and I have got a, a large portfolio to the point where it's, it's a bit of a hassle. So we're actually trying to sell off some of our smaller assets and probably just concentrate on, on good quality, larger ones. Cause uh, that's what I've learned. That's just my personal preference. It's what I want to hold until I'm uh, you know, a little old man type of thing. You know, I don't want to be dealing with individual houses, individual tenant problems. Cause there's lots of them, you know, there's every time it's there's scale, bad weather, right? you got to repair stuff and you know, it's just, it's never ending. But when you've got a good commercial property with a triple net lease, Maintenance is on them. Insurance is on them. Uh, you're generally dealing with five to seven year leases rather than 12 month leases. So the turnover is less. Uh, I like dealing with a professional tenant because they've got their own brand and reputation to uphold. So they they perform like a, like a business should. When you're dealing with individual tenants, um, you've just got a thousand factors that are, are going to just work against you. So um, yeah, we, we concentrate on working with the business. The more we help our clients purchase, the better our networks become. So that's probably our biggest strength. It's it's who we know in the industry. It's like any industry. We know lots of good agents and people selling direct. We And they send us properties before they hit the market. So it's probably like what you do there. You, you get your best deals pre-market where no one else gets to see them and we're just negotiating versus the owner. Now we still buy properties when they are online but we're acting very quick. We're a little bit more nimble than others that, like you said, the, the big managed funds, they're going to take an extra month to get their stuff together. But before that, you're already in there and 
got control of the asset. So very similar models, but um, yeah, our, our niche is just getting off market stock and doing all the due diligence for the client. We've got a due diligence team, which will go through every single number on the property. If we call the tenants up, get their business plans. We just want to know their intention. We look into the competitor analysis, make sure there's no extra, uh, you know, if you're buying a fast food, restaurant make sure there's not another da down the road going up you know to build another one and uh yeah it's it's just a very holistic approach and if the property stacks up and looks good we proceed to settlement on it awesome and do you ever combine and i don't know if this ever occurs but i know uh an australian investor australian he was a kp on my deals we were still going to get him on the show um on my early deals he, he came out to America, made a bunch of money in multifamily and took it back to Australia. And he's actually buying medical office buildings or medical office businesses. So, so doctors essentially practices, but trying to team them up with actually getting the dirt as well. Do you ever see that where you're trying to f- buy the business on top of the dirt rather than just the dirt and be the triple net lease? Um, yes, it's happening more commonly. Like it's, um, you just got to be, you want to be in the right business, I guess. Sure. So it's very common with things like, car washes in Australia where you, you buy the business because those car washes are very passive. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, my investors are passive investors. They, they're happy to sort of do a bit of a value add here or there on the property, but they don't want to manage a business because um, mm-hmm. it's a whole different ball game. Uh, so doctors are a very specialist. So if you're a doctor investor, that makes sense. You know, you, you can pretty much get the practice up to a normal level, uh, create some goodwill in that, sell the business for a higher amount to a, someone else and they can take it over. So that's a double play, but um, it's, a, it's a fairly low percentage play too. There's just not many of those opportunities that come up. And if you're in the right industry, then yeah, go for it. But I personally wouldn't try and prove a medical practice because I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so, uh, well, he's, he's done it. I, 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 he's doing it really, really well and making an absolute killing on it as well. Right you know, so it's just these weird things that you need to do. Like you talked, you spoke about medical office centers and being around that and then having a facility or, or near a medical office facility so you can be the storage for that or some, something that is going to be uh, an ancillary service to a major job creation in a specific market is really, really important. Yeah. So no, awesome stuff, mate. Tell me a little bit about the book because you're about to launch it. It's got, well, we've got you on the show. We want to hear about your book and what you're coming out with you and your wife co-wrote it, right? What, what's, uh, what's, what's in it? Yeah, so when uh, well, when I started getting into commercial property, it took me about eighteen months before like researching to actually buy a property. And I remember reading as much as I could, and it was funny. There was probably more stuff in the US at the point time about commercial property than Australia. There was nothing about this market at the time. There was no commercial books. Even when you googled commercial investing in Australia, you just would see some very half cut residential uh, based investor talking about it on the side. And it was just very poor information. So it was very hard to learn about. And I just wanted the basics, you know, what's the difference between, you know, industrial to uh, medical to office, office space, specialty, you know, childcares and uh, service stations. It was very hard to sort of compare things and, and learn about it. So this book basically covers all that. It's just a, it's a, it's a basic run through of everything about real estate in the country. Um, but it's using real life examples, like how my wife, Mina and I actually got into property, you know, how we transitioned from residential to commercial and how the numbers were just so much better. And we compare sort of, um, you know, there's lots of spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff in there, just showing the different returns on equity. And, um, 
Yeah, it's just a just a one-on-one summary of the of the book, and uh, it's going quite well. Like there's there's about two thousand copies that sold last week, so beautiful. Going going pretty quick, so we're uh, we're happy with that. But it's just yeah, we just want to get commercial more mainstream in Australia. That's sort of our goal because uh, you know, it it feels good to do something new in the country that hasn't really been covered properly. So that's that's sort of what we'll be doing. That's awesome. Time. And I think, I think there's just a, a, an incredible opportunity if you can add the technology piece to it, to capturing that data in a, in a more systematic way and then sell, selling that data back to the industry. Yes. Uh, you, you, you'll be attracting a lot of, a lot of big players because it's like the, I just I literally just did a podcast about mining. You know, it wasn't, it was not about the gold that you dig for. It's about the person who sold the shovels and the yeah. ropes and the, the buckets yeah. that made all the money. And if you can capture that, if you can capture that data and it's, an additional vertical income, it just, it makes sense because people do yearn data to make educated decisions about their investment portfolio. So awesome stuff, mate. I'm really excited for you and I uh, can't wait to read the book and get my hands on it so I can learn a little bit more about the Aussie real estate market. <laughs> mate, at the end of every show, we like to dive into the top five investing tips. It's a quick five question lightning round. You ready to get into it? Sounds good. Mate, what is your daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Um, it's basically routine. So I like to exercise every day, whether it's surfing or just a quick gym session, it clears the head. Cause I, uh, I work quite late hours. If you don't have that break, I find you, you go a bit mad to be honest. Uh, it's like digits and mm-hmm. never ending phone calls and you know, it will get repetitive at some point. So, uh, yeah, having a, a routine, whatever that is, is, is very important to stay focused. Oh, 100%, mate. It's, uh, it's nearly four o'clock here and I've blinked and the day's over. <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even believe. Uh, question number two is, who's the most influential person in your career to date? Oh, good question. Look, it's probably my father because it'll sound weird, but he was so negative on every business opportunity. And it made me look at, you know, it's funny, you go up down the street and go, yeah, that business is not going to work. You know, all that, that, um, that really... I guess skeptical kind of view of looking at things, I think made me a bit a good investor because I was never I never went with rose-colored glasses into an investment. I always expected things to be not perfect and then how to deal with that. Um, so I was always I was always sort of programmed to think that because of his negativity towards all sorts of things. Um, but in a good way. I don't mean it as like, you know, saying everything was terrible. It was just more look at things deeper. Don't think it's always going to be, you know, perfect because it won't. And then if you could deal with that non, non-perfect situation, then it may be a good investment or opportunity or whatever we're talking about. Awesome. Love it, mate. Question number three is in your business, what's the most influential tool? And when I say tool, it could be a phone or a journal, or it could be a piece of software. What is it? Oh, look, it's probably not something individual. It's, it's, it's more just our contacts, I guess. So, you know, you could call that the phone, but um, it's over the years because we've been doing this, you know, at fairly high volumes for many years. That's our great IP. You know, agents and people selling properties know who we are, so they come to us with the deals, and that is gold. You know, it means we can bring good deals to our investors, and uh, even if we didn't even try, they're going to be landing in our inbox every day, and that's um, that's great. taken years to get to. So that's the number one. For sure. That's great. Well done, mate. It's uh, definitely carving out a niche in an industry that is uh, being not neglected, but maybe not spoken about as much. So, so well done. Um, in one sentence, what's been the biggest, and I say the word failure, but it's more mistake. What's the yep. biggest mistake slash failure you have had in your career? And what did you learn from that? 
Um, look, it's going to sound cliche, but probably just not getting into it a bit sooner. I, I was going down the 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 path because I was very cash flow focused, and I always knew about commercial, but I got spoken out about it by my mortgage broker, by you know my friends and family at the time when I was younger, and I always knew this was where it was at, and it was just I focused on the risk way more than I needed to rather than plan, you know, going, how do we deal with that risk? And yeah, it was, I could have got into it five years earlier and it, um, I don't re- regret anything, uh, but yeah, obviously I love this whole side of the investment world and I just delayed it for no good reason really uh, <laughs> because I was following what everyone else wanted to do. Telling, yeah, exactly. Following the old, the poor dad mentality of what people thought was too scary, the boogeyman, 100%. right? Awesome stuff, mate. Last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? Um, best way is just Google Rethink Investing. Uh, you'll see us all over the internet. And, um, yeah, we'll, we've got phone numbers, but emails. So info at rethinkinvesting.com.au. Um, and, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I was really excited to talk to you about the the booming industry of commercial real estate in Australia, just how the lack of uh, coverage it's got. And I think you've done an incredible job, you and your wife, taking a niche and making it more understandable, breaking it down into its parts so people can get involved in it through your own personal anecdotes and experience. I think that's super, super helpful and valuable to to be sharing that with the, the outside world. And then also... For Americans who are looking to invest into Australia using the, 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 the good foreign exchange currency and then understanding that there's people like yourself and companies out there that are doing syndications in Australia in the commercial space, getting some really good attractive financing on, on the upfront purchase, coming in with good cap rates, understanding the value can be created and then exiting at a profit. I think I will be able to definitely send you some investors along the way. Um, but did I, did I miss anything out in that recap? No, that was perfect, mate. I like, I like the summary. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you again for taking some time out of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. Thanks, Reed. See you, mate. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with this incredible advice from Scott. Please definitely head over to Rethink rethinkinvesting.com.au. I hope I got that right. It's also Rethink Property Investment on Google. Um, info at Rethink investing i believe it is.com.au and if you have any questions for scott please go over there and check him out google him understand what he does because he is doing some incredible stuff in the australian real estate commercial real estate market which is can be very parallel to what we do here in america so definitely check him out if you're looking for that yield because i know here in, in america it's becoming harder and harder to chase i want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial iq if you do like this show the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on itunes and we're going to do it all again next week so remember be bold be brave and go give life a crack.